The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. If you are new here, we've been walking through the letter to the Hebrews uh, for many weeks now, and we are at the end of chapter 10. We're just walking through chapter by chapter. The author is writing to Jews in the book of Hebrews um, because many of them are wavering in their faith, largely due to the persistent influence, even persecution coming from fellow Jews that had rejected Jesus as Messiah. And the writer lays out a very powerful case using evidence from throughout the Old Testament to show why it would be a terrible mistake to turn from Jesus and go back to their old understandings and traditions. Because Jesus alone is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets, and therefore the only way to salvation And he's been showing us that Jesus is superior, not just in one or two ways, but in every way. Jesus is superior to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses, because he leads his people into a better promised land and offers them a better rest. And for five and a half chapters, the writer has gone into great detail to show us how Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron's priesthood. Jesus' high priest offers a better uh, sacrifice, not the blood of animals that could never atone for sin, but his own blood once and for all. And the main point of the first half of chapter 10 is stated in verse 14, and it says this, For by a single offering Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And last week we covered the first big application of that main point And it is this, that now in Christ, we can draw near to God. And it's stated in verse 22 of chapter 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we looked at the first main application. This week, we're going to look at the second big application, which is hold fast to Jesus. And it's found in the opening verse of our passage, verse 23. Follow along as I read the entire text, which is going to be verses 23 through 39. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding, and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It gives us exactly what we need for all of life, for growing in our relationship with you, for making sense out of life and how to live it. Father, we pray that you would open our minds and also open our hearts Make us receptive and eager to learn. Help us to pay attention to your word this morning. And as we do, Lord, we pray that you would encourage those of us that need to be encouraged, that you would warn and rebuke those of us who need that as well, that we all might come to repentance and deeper faith in Christ. And Lord, that we might understand the glory of Christ and the joy only to be found in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, the main application, uh, which is what we're dealing with this week, is let us hold fast. Last week's application is draw near to God. This week is let us hold fast. It's in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And the rest of the passage we're going to look at this morning fleshes out why and how we must hold fast the confession of our hope. First, we'll talk about why and then how. Why? Why we must hold fast the confession of our hope. And the passage gives us three reasons. One, Jesus' superiority. Two, God's faithful promises. And three, God's righteous judgments. First, Jesus' superiority. Look again at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hold fast the confession. The confession that he's been proclaiming for ten chapters that Jesus is superior in every way. And he had offered a once and for all sacrifice for sin so that we can draw near to God so that we can be truly forgiven and no longer burdened by shame and guilt because Jesus had paid for it all. And notice, we confess our hope. We do not create our hope. This hope is no mere social construct. 
imagined by religiously minded people, this hope is an objective reality, a sure foundation for anyone who rests upon it. Now, I heard a story from that famous pastor, Tim Keller. He shared about two climbers who had become stuck on the side of a cliff. And when it was a desperate situation, they could not hang on where they were. Unless they shifted to shore footing, they would certainly fall and perish. On each side, the right and the left, was a ledge that if they jumped to, looked as if it could hold their weight and allow them to descend safely. The first climber, being the more naturally confident of the two, said, I really believe with all my heart that that ledge will hold. And he was pointing to the one on the left, and he jumped to it, but it crumbled under his feet, and he fell to his death. The second climber, not a confident person by nature, said, well, I'm not sure if the other cliff will hold, and with barely enough faith to move, He leapt, and it held him, and he descended to safety. Now let me ask you, which of the two climbers was saved? The one with great confidence, or the one who trusted in the right rock? See, Jesus is our sure foundation on which we stand because he is superior in every way. He is a solid rock That is the main point that the writer of Hebrews is making. He is the only sure foundation. And we are held fast only when we hold fast to him. Hold fast because Jesus is superior. Not even death could defeat him. For he rose again, physically, actually. He is superior in every way. Second, hold fast not just because he's superior, But hold fast because God who promised is faithful. That's what it says in verse 23. Hold fast because God who made the promise in Jesus is faithful. Not because the majority believed in Jesus. The majority of Jews, even at the time this letter was written, rejected Jesus. The leaders were so threatened by Jesus, they tried him undercover at night and got Pilate to hang him. And Jesus' followers at this time were being hunted down and arrested at times, stoned to death to put the fear of God into anyone who considered following this, this new way. No, we hold fast, not because it's popular, but because God who promised is faithful. And not because all God's promises are fulfilled as we expect and according to our timing. At the time this letter was written, the temple in Jerusalem was standing glorious The crowds were still busy offering animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrificial death had seemed to change very little, culturally speaking. And Jesus' prediction that the temple would be destroyed hadn't yet occurred. Now, of course, that would change in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed it, but at the moment, it looked unlikely. But see, the, the reader... The writer, excuse me, is reminding his readers, hold fast the confession of our hope because God who promised is faithful. Not because life always plays out as you expect. It doesn't. Not because life always makes more sense as a Christian. It doesn't. The cross of Christ is foolishness to the world, but is the power of God for our salvation. 
And in the cross, we see God bring more pain into the life of His own dear Son, which tells us that God is free to bring more pain into our life than we might ever imagine a good God capable of. He did it to Jesus, and Jesus said that if we follow Him, we will have cross, crosses to bear too. We must hold fast the confession of our hope because God who promised is faithful, not because it always feels good to be a Christian. It doesn't. Jesus wept. His best friends abandoned him at his greatest hour of need. We get no exemption for being his followers to have an easy life. He never promised that. He only promised that he would abide with us through all of life's highs and lows and that we must continue to trust him, that he has led the way, and it often goes, that way goes through a cross. And so we must hold fast to Jesus because he who promised is trustworthy, not because life in Christ always feels good or plays out as you expect or always makes sense. We must trust the character of God, not our circumstances, not our feelings, not our appetites, not our anxieties or fears. Hold fast to Christ, in spite of appearances, because God is faithful. Now, what God asks us to do, to hold fast to him in such a way, it's only reasonable. After all, we often demand the same type of trust from others. C.S. Lewis said it this way, there are times when we can do all that a fellow creature needs if only he will trust us. In getting a dog out of a trap, in extracting a thorn from a child's finger, in teaching a boy to swim or rescue one who can't, in getting a frightened beginner beginner over a nasty place on a mountain, the one fatal obstacle may be their distrust. And so we are asking them to trust us in the teeth of their senses, their imagination, and their intelligence. We ask them to believe that what is painful will relieve their pain. And what looks dangerous is their only safety. We ask them to accept apparent impossibilities, that moving the paw further back into the trap is the way to get out, that hurting the finger more will stop the finger hurting, that holding on to the only support in reach is not the way to avoid sinking, that to go higher and onto a more exposed ledge is the way not to fall. See, sometimes, though, because of their unbelief, we can do no mighty works. But if we succeed, we do so because they have maintained their faith in us against apparently contrary evidence. And no one blames us for demanding such faith of them. No one blames them for giving it. Do you hear what Lewis is saying? Even when God feels distant, And even when we're delusioned by pain, we are called to trust him, for he is faithful. And if we're called to trust people at just a glance or a look because they look like they have good intentions to help us, how much more reasonable is it to hold fast to Christ? For Jesus Christ, his very life, his death, and his resurrection prove the steadfast love of God, the redeeming power of God, and his superior wisdom. So why are we to hold fast our confession of hope? Because he who promised is faithful. But secondly, also because he who promised is a righteous judge. 
Look at verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse the punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What is the sinning referred to in verse 26? Well, it is deliberate and ongoing. And specifically, it's the deliberate, ongoing rejection of Jesus. Read it. For if we go on sinning deliberately after having received a knowledge of the truth, meaning truth about Jesus, he's not talking about momentary doubt or confusion. He's not talking about the occasional weakness of faith that comes from persecution or fear. He's not talking about temporary theological confusion. But he's also not talking about the type of sins committed by setting aside God's law. You know, even the biggies of murder and adultery. What is he talking about? He's talking about one particular sin that is a grievous sin, and it comes as we set aside not God's law, but God's grace, deliberately and persistently setting aside the graciousness of God offered to us in Jesus Christ and turning back to a self-justifying relationship with God. Now, we know this is the meaning because of the context. The necessary thing is identified in verse 23. Hold fast to your confession in Christ without wavering. Holding fast to Christ is as necessary for salvation as oxygen is for life. So letting go of Christ is no small matter. It is a matter of life and death. Thus, the worst of sins is clarified in verse 29. It is the trampling underfoot of the Son of God That's Jesus, thereby profaning the blood of the covenant, the blood that Jesus shed, and outraging the spirit of grace. And this, as it says in verse 26, the second half, after receiving the knowledge of the truth of Christ, do you hear the strong words? It's a trampling, a profaning, an outraging, and the worst of sin results in the worst of consequences, as we see in verse 28 and 29. If setting aside the law of Moses meant death without mercy in verse 28, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who've trampled underfoot the Son of God? Don't ever think that rejecting Jesus is a trivial matter. If a person ultimately rejects Jesus, it is the only matter of eternal consequence. Legally speaking, no other sin except this one seals a person's eternal condemnation. Every other sin, no matter how defiling, no matter how terrible, no matter how ingrained, can be forgiven, but not this. And personally speaking, 
Nothing else provokes God's anger like the rejection of his steadfast love and his amazing grace and the evident truth offered to us through his son, Jesus Christ. See, legally speaking, if you reject the terms God offers for your forgiveness, then, well, you won't be forgiven. When you reject the only acceptable sacrifice for sins, you seal your fate. There is no other option. There is, quote, no remaining sacrifice for sins, as it says in verse 26. And so you have a choice. Accept the terms Jesus offers, which is to bear your shame, guilt, and sin, or bear all of that yourself. That's the simple legal realities. But personally speaking, if you reject God's terms of forgiveness, you add insult to injury. For such a rejection is an intensely personal matter. It's a grievous offense, and it's a smack in the face of God. Imagine a rape victim, if you will, offering terms of forgiveness to her rapist. She says, I will forgive you if you confess what you've done before the authorities without equivocation or excuse, but with an awareness of the pain and suffering you've caused, and then sincerely ask for my forgiveness. Then you shall have it. Those are my terms. And we all know in our gut that those terms are right and true. But imagine the rapist saying, can't we deal with this some other way? You used to be pleased when I bought you things. Let me do that. Let's just move forward to the way things were before. Now, our gut knows that is not okay. He hasn't taken seriously the devastating nature of his offense, and his blinding self-righteousness only adds offense through his offers of gifts. It's actually outrageous, and he's trampling over the offended party yet again, profaning and defiling the victim. For the rapist to think that he holds the right to set the terms for his own forgiveness? Well, that's nauseating. And likewise, if we reject God's terms of forgiveness and counter with our own, we add insulting God to our own injury. For not only do we condemn ourselves legally speaking, personally speaking, we spit in the face of God because we haven't taken seriously the devastating nature of our offense and any gifts that we give. Oh, let me just get religious and go to church and I'll serve in the choir. It's offensive. See, if we reject God's terms offered in Jesus, we alone bear the consequences, as it says in verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the real God, the living God. If you don't fear God, it's probably because you've created some plaything in your mind. The real God who created the heavens and the earth, the billions of galaxies, You don't mess with that God. So why must we hold fast the confession of our hope? Jesus' superiority, only he can save us. He is the right rock 
to trust in. And God, who promised is faithful, we can hold fast even despite apparent contrary evidence. And God, who promised, he's the righteous judge. He offers forgiveness through Jesus on very gracious terms. But if you reject his terms, you alone bear the consequences. So that's why we hold fast. Now let's move on to how. How to hold fast the confession of our hope in Christ. Well, the writer says we hold fast to Christ in Christian community. And this entails an awareness of the past, the present, and the future. Let's start with the past and work our way forward. Let's not forget the past. Look at verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partner with those who were so treated. And you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. See, we are to encourage one another about what God has already done. Don't forget the changes God has made in your life. Remember your love for Jesus when you first discovered his grace, that honeymoon love that liberated you to endure hardship personally and publicly and to partner with brothers and sisters who were thrown in prison and lost their property. This is what the writer says. Remember how you joyfully accepted such suffering because you reframed it in light of the beauty of Christ and all that you would receive from him. The most memorable movie I ever saw in a theater as a kid was Rocky III, and our family just recently rewatched it. By the end of the movie, I'm a 10-year-old boy, and I'm in the theater, and everyone's screaming, Rocky, Rocky. I'm like, I love the movies. This was so fun. Well, in the movie, Rocky got beat up terribly and lost a humiliating defeat, and he got stuck in fear and doubt, and he could not move forward with confidence, the confidence needed to endure the fight to go the rounds against the one who sought to destroy him until he went back and remembered who he was, that he was a fighter, not a loser. That's who he was, a fighter, not a loser. And Apollo Creed told Rocky, Rock, you used to have the eye of the tiger, but you lost it, and we're going to get it back for you. And getting back the eye of the tiger happened in community among friends. And in a similar way, getting back that eye of faith, of deep and abiding trust in Christ, often comes as our friends, the community of faith reminds us of what God has already done and brings to mind his faithfulness from our past, which as we think about, it reminds us who we are, redefines who we are, that we are fighters in the faith. So holding fast to Christ and community always entails an awareness of the past that rekindles things in the present. And that's why he says what he does in verse 39. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Holding fast to Christian community, uh, to Christ in community, has an awareness of the past as well as one of the present. 
Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, there's a present awareness, a duty that has two parts here. One's positive and one's negative. Positively, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. It is to be thoughtful. He says, consider how. Think about it. It's to be proactive. Stir. Stir one another up to love and good works. See, Jesus has placed a new heart in his people by the power of his spirit. And it's one that is empowered to love God and serve others. And that spirit, that redeemed spirit is really in us. It's there. But because of abiding, lingering sin and the fallenness of this world, and the, delusion, the, the, the delusionment it can often cause, it can lie hidden in us. And like chocolate syrup that sits at the bottom of a glass of milk, our job is to stir it up in one another through love and good works. Negatively speaking, he says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. See, an evident problem in the Hebrew church was that some people had already fallen into this unhealthy habit. They'd stopped meeting together, and they had pulled away into isolation. And oftentimes, persecution and suffering does that. And if you are in a stage of life right now where life is not going well, but you are here, I want to thank you. I know how hard it is to come to church when you're suffering. And it is a huge step of faith that you are here. And it is hard. You're risking. Christians, as much as they love you, will ask you questions that are really annoying and frustrating. And I hope you can forgive them. They mean to love you. But see, we, Satan wants us to pull away. He is a prowling lion. His hunting follows a predictable pattern. He divides the flock. He tries to separate one from the rest. And when they are separated and alone, he pounces. Now, most Sunday mornings, not this morning, we confess together the Apostles' Creed. It starts out with, I believe in God the Father, Almighty. It moves on to, and I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And it continues, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. But, it, but we also say, I believe in the church, the communion of saints, now, when there is a breakdown of belief, it often starts here. You've heard people say it. Well, I still believe in Jesus. I just don't believe in the church. Now, certainly, we must distinguish between the perfect faithfulness of, the church, uh, of Jesus and the unfaithfulness of the church. The church falls short, but we must never forget that God is doing a good work in his people and that someday in glory the church will get there and share the beauty and perfection of Jesus Christ. We must not forget that. Jesus believed in his church and he works powerfully through plain Janes and average Joe sinners to create hope and to spread his redemptive work. Now interestingly, those who start disbelieving in the church often end up disbelieving in Jesus. They begin by believing that they are too good for the church, and thus they don't need the church. And in blind pride, they lose an accurate sense of self, 
and they hypocritically focus on the hypocrisy of others. And at times it can get pretty petty, but it's definitely arrogant. It can grow bitter. And through it all, they evidence, ironically, that they fit right in to the church as fellow sinners. But it is a subtle shift from believing you're too good for the church to believing you're too good for Jesus and don't need him either. Your personal sin becomes not that big of a deal. Sin is reinterpreted to the point that you don't actually need a rescuer or a savior. You, you might need a counselor, a coach, maybe a teacher, maybe someone to cheer you on. But in rejecting Jesus as your savior that you are desperate for, you reject him as Lord. And he comes to have little say in your life. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says we must not neglect meeting together and we must consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. So we hold fast to Christ by holding fast to his community, presently encouraging one another, recalling the past and stirring one another up in the present. But there's also a future orientation. Look at it in verse 24. But encouraging one another... And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then look down to verses 36 to 38. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. See, we, we can get so caught up in our present reality, distracted by life's many blessings, and this world is so full of the glory and goodness of God that we, and, and his blessings, that, that we sometimes get caught up in the blessings and, and we, we lose sight of the blesser. And so we can get caught up in our present reality, distracted by life's many blessings, On the other hand, we can be provoked to doubt and worry by life's many challenges and sufferings. And so much so that we forget the day is drawing near. Our death and the entrance to eternity is drawing near. See, on the grand scale of eternity, our present pleasures and pains, our captivations and our worries are but a drop in the bucket compared to what is coming in eternity. And as we think about that coming day, it transforms and reframes everything in light of his eternal kingdom. I heard an illustration by Francis Chan that had a big impact on me. I'm going to share it with you. I got a really long rope here. It just keeps going. Um, If I rolled it all out, it would go back. But imagine... It's Westminster. I didn't do that. That's why I didn't do that. It's up here. Okay. Imagine this rope is your life, and it goes on forever, but this part where the tape is, is your life presently on earth. It's the roughly 80 years you have, and all that you'll learn and experience, the pleasure and the pain, the things that captivate you, that you think are so wonderful and you're looking at it going, man, I can't live without this. Or the pain that is so overwhelming, you're like, I'll never understand this, God. Why did you do this? 
And what he says is, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near when we cross over to eternity. When Jesus came the first time, did you ever notice he fixed a lot of things? Everything he touched, he fixed. If you were blind, he restored your sight. If you were a leper, which was not just a physical illness, but it, it cast you out of community. He, he healed you physically, and then he brought you into community and then restored you to worship. He's healing us in every way. And, and that's just an appetizer of what he will do the second time when he restores everything in its full glory. That's why the resurrection is so important. We're not going to be drifting around on clouds. We're going to be having new resurrected bodies that can't get sick with disease, that won't age over time, but that will remain strong and healthy. We'll be given new minds and a new heart. And all those pleasures that you just can't live without, that that just don't compare to Jesus, they, they are just an appetizer of the giver who has so much more pleasure that you will experience in him. And it will take this long to just absorb it. It's that much. And your pain, you can say the same thing. You're you're looking and you're saying, God, I cannot believe you brought this much pain. It's way too much. Now, I want to be careful not to say too much. That's why the writer tells us to encourage us, to encourage each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. He does not say, live in denial of your present pleasure, like the Stoics did, or live in denial of your pain, stuff your worries, ignore your doubts. He's not telling you to do that. He's saying work through it, process it. He asks us to encourage one another by reframing all of that, every pleasure, every pain, every worry, every doubt, every fear, and every anxiety in light of eternity. See, as John Eldridge wrote, the whole idea of a fall assumes a starting place from which to plummet. And given given what a big deal the Bible makes of the fall, it must have been from a pretty high place. He continues, think for a moment about the millions of tourists who visit ancient sites like the Parthenon, the Colosseum, and the pyramids, mere shadows of their former glory. These ruins still all inspire. Though fallen in their glory, their glory cannot be fully extinguished. See, we are, as one theologian put it, we are glorious ruins. But unlike those grand monuments, we are ones who will be restored to full glory for all eternity. New bodies, new hearts, new minds, and a new creation. And I think that reframes things quite powerfully, allowing us to reinterpret our loss as though significant and terrible. It's only temporary. It's not the last word. And our pleasures, though wonderful and beautiful, they're only appetizers. And our confusion and doubts, which seem totally unresolvable, actually will be resolvable from the eyes of eternity. So how do we hold fast the confession of our faith? We hold fast in community, stirring one another up with a deep awareness of the past, the present, and the future. That's how we do it and why we do it. We do it because Jesus is superior. We hold fast to a rock, a steadfast hope. 
He is superior in every way, and God is faithful to his promises, but he is also just. So be warned. Let us pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. What amazing grace that you would be so patient with us to send prophets through the ages to tell about your ways, but we would not hear you. But yet you did not give up. You continued to send more and more prophets, and eventually you came yourself. And you showed us what you were really like. You showed us your steadfast love and your power to heal and redeem every part of creation. And you covered our shame and our guilt. Lord, what amazing grace. This is our one true hope. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to hold fast to Christ. I pray for anyone here who's let go of Christ, that this morning they would repent and turn back. Maybe they've left Christ because they are distracted by other pleasures. Help them to see no pleasure compares to him. Maybe they've left Christ because they don't think that their sins can truly be forgiven. Help them to see that no sin is so defiling that Jesus can't forgive. He gave everything so that all sin could be forgiven. The only thing that leaves us hopeless is if we reject him. So, Father, I pray for anyone here that's tempted to do that, that you would hold fast to them and not let them go so that they might hold fast to you. And, and I also pray for those here who have family members, friends, who've strayed from you. They saw an active, vibrant faith at one time. Oh God, have mercy on those who've strayed. Work in the nooks and crannies of their heart. Help them to be recaptivated by the person of Christ. Quicken in them a godly fear and bring them home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.